It's good be, to be here with you this morning. It's kind of like coming home for me for the first uh, four years of our nine-year experience here in Los Angeles area. My wife and I were involved with this campus. We were actually uh, located for one year down at what they used to call the village, which was the off-campus housing. It was a wild place and a wonderful place to be. We learned a lot uh, together there. It was a lot of fun. But as I was thinking about uh, the opportunity to share with you today, I thought, what can I tell them that they probably haven't already heard? I mean, they're hearing so many things in their classes. They're learning so many wonderful things from their teachers. What can I say to them that would really help them at this time in the semester, at this time of the school year? And I kind of hearken back a long time ago to my own experience sitting where you are. I remember one day I was sitting in the dorm. And I was sitting at my desk, and I just finished some kind of an assignment or something like that. And I thought, now where is all this heading? I thought, you know, this life thing is going to go really fast. It is going to be a vapor, just like James says. I think at that point I was in my third year, and it was moving so quickly, I knew I was going to be out before I could realize it, probably be married, have children, be involved in some kind of ministry, and life would be over. I could see myself at about 76 years of age, looking back saying, where'd it go? It went so fast. Why didn't I do more? What would have helped me to do it better than I did it? And as I sat there in my room, I thought, you know, I need something to hold on to. I need a simple principle of life that I can always come back to and that I could come back to very quickly and not have to spend a lot, of, a lot of brain power or whatever thinking about it, figuring it out every time. Something that would be almost kind of knee-jerk reaction when times were tough. You know, I knew that, basically like you know, that there are times that are difficult in life. We all experience them. I want to be able to, to think about this principle very quickly. And the one that I fell back to, probably one that some of you fall back to many times, was the principle of judgment in Scripture principle of judgment. And the principle of judgment is kind of like what you're facing right now. You're thinking about your exams, thinking, hey, this is payday. All those wonderful weekends that I spent not really studying like I should have. Yeah. A couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some exams, and it's accountability time. It's time to render a, a judgment, if you will, of sorts for what I've done or what I haven't done. Well, on a grand scale, that's what I like to think about judgment in Scripture as being. And if you would, would you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes? I think Solomon talks about judgment in a little more comprehensive way than anyone else I know of in Scripture. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's thinking about some tough stuff. He's facing the, the big issues of life. He's not dealing with the trivial little things. It's the big ones. And he wants to take the young people of the kingdom and gather them together and say, look, don't make the mistakes that I did. Don't be foolish with your life. Solomon is saying, try this. Try this route instead. Well, judgment, Solomon is going to tell us. We need a little bit of background to kind of work our way into this. Judgment is an important matter. In fact, probably uh, there are a few things in Scripture and in life that are going to be more important than the judgment which we all face one day. It's so important that one counseling theorist kind of took judgment as a major theme and said, you know, this is what Christians are thinking about. Whether it's conscious, whether it's the thing they're talking about, 
whether it's the thing they're really thinking about at the surface level, judgment is there in their thinking almost all the while. They know that one day they will stand before their Creator and they will have to render account. So regardless of what enjoyable experience they're having in their lives, what great difficulty they're experiencing in their lives, Christians will think about judgment very often. It'll be a major prime mover in their lives. Judgment is an important theme for us Christians. But judgment is also a complex theme. It's not an easy thing that's, it's not a thing that's easy to understand. You know, God, when He set up the universe way back before creation, He sort of built in some basic, almost like natural laws. And here are two. God says, I will reward obedience. Of course, we know that's a very complex principle. And then he said, I will punish disobedience. That's easy. That's not hard to understand. Those are very simple principles. What's hard to understand, what is hard to make sense of, are the exceptions. What happens when righteous people suffer? What happens when wicked people prosper? You know, the inequities of life the things that frustrate even the biblical writers. That's when that system that God has built in seems to get cut loose and go wild. Well, that's part of the complexity of judgment. Judgment is important. Judgment is complex. We want to try to appreciate both of those dimensions of judgment today. Solomon's going to tell us, and we're just going to look at really basically four principles that Solomon points out. He talks about many more. In no way are we going to say everything that Solomon says about judgment. It's too big of a theme. But I've tried to pick the four that I think will help you the most and the four that I think were most helpful to me when I was sitting where you're sitting and wondering what on earth is life going to be life, like for me? What can I hang on to as a single principle that will sort of jab me when I need it? Will sort of slap me up when I need a, a good slapping up at times in my life. Reality check, we say at times. Four ways to experience the kind side of judgment. You know, I think we think about judgment as having only a harsh side. We want to think about the four ways that we can experience the kind side of judgment. First of all, Solomon's going to tell us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He's going to tell us, believe that God has appointed a time in which to judge you, your own personal judgment. You know, we talk about judgment in these vague, general terms. You know, everyone will experience a judgment someday. Solomon says, no. Judgment is for us, for each and every one of us. And there is an appointed time he's going to tell us for judgment. Solomon's talking about appointed times, scheduled times. Call them what you like in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. Just look at verse 2. Time to give birth. Some people would say a time to be born. And a time to die. Time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. Solomon says there is a time for everything under the sun. Now he's not saying there is a time for us to be commanded to do these things. What he's saying is God has picked times, dates, Dates with a time, just like you'd look at your watch, 
for each one of these things to happen in our lives. And that's something we're commanded to do now. These are times in which we will experience these things that Solomon is writing about. In fact, in verse 9, he asks the question that's really leading to the big issue. He says, what profit is there in the worker from that in which he toils? Solomon says, why do we do anything? Why do we bother? Why do we work? Why would we work hard for anything in life? Why don't we just sit back, relax, and enjoy the scenery? And let life go by and, like I was sharing earlier, at the end of our lives we'll look back and say, oh well, it was life. They're kind of like the unsaved person approaches it. They're just sort of going for a ride. And they're trying to grab a little fun here and there and a little satisfaction. And when it's over, it's, oh well, it's over. At least that's what they tell you. They don't tell you about the deep fear within each and every one of them that they're going to face a God one day. They're going to face some kind of accountability that they don't understand. Well, Solomon says in verse 9, what profit is there? Now he's going to answer it in verse 17. Solomon says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time, there's that word again, an appointed time, for every matter and for every deed is here. Solomon's not saying, you know, pick a time, any time, and you can be judged. Solomon's saying, God has a day timer. And on that day timer, on a specific day, at a specific time, is written the name Dave Duell. And Dave Duell will stand before God and will render an account. It is an absolute certainty. There is an appointed time. And Solomon says, that's what we live for. We live to face that moment. That is the moment. You know, he's talked about all these other times back in the early verses of chapter 3 to make this very point, I believe. Yeah, there's a time to live, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to build, and a time to tear down. But most significantly, there is a time where you and I will stand before God and render an account. Even Christians will render an account to our Creator. Solomon says, take it seriously. He says, I have wasted my life. Just read about it in my diary, 1 Kings 2 through 11. You can know what I did. I have trashed my life. I don't want that to happen to you. It's a very serious issue of a time for judgment. You know, we can look at our own day timers and we can see root canal. Go see Dr. Goldberg. Need tires rotated. Go to tire pros. It's too bad. We couldn't look at our day timers. And a specific day, a specific time, see, now I meet the Lord. We would live life differently, Solomon says. We would face the whole issue. Judgment would be an impetus for obedience then. It would finally have a work in our lives the way that it should. So Solomon says, believe that God has appointed a time in which to judge you. He says, just accept it as a reality. That's a start. Don't play games with your mind. You will stand before God. He says, secondly, don't let the delayed nature of judgment serve as an excuse to disobey. Let's look at chapter 8 and verse 11. 
Solomon says, you know, it's a big game that everyone is playing. And here it is in verse 11. It starts in the middle of a sentence, more or less. He says, because the sentence, that's the, the judgment in court, if you will. It's a court metaphor. Because the judgment against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore, the hearts of the sons of men, mankind, if you will, among them are given fully to do evil. Solomon says, you know what? It's too bad that when we sin, God doesn't judge us instantaneously, right away. We would approach our sin in an entirely different way. We wouldn't do half the things that we do. But because we believe we've got time on our hands, and we can kind of make excuses, we can kind of manipulate the system that God has set up. We can do a little more good than bad down the road, you know. We can uh, become a missionary when we're 25, but live like the devil until we are 25. Solomon says, don't play that game. That's no game at all. The reality is, if we were judged instantaneously when we sin, we would live differently. And there is no cleaning the sheet off once it's done. There is an account to be rendered. Chapter 7, verse 15, he says, we all say, but what about that person, that wicked person who prospers in life? And what about that righteous person who suffers tremendously? Where are the, the equities there? Where is the justice? Bottom line, what people are saying when they say that is there is no immediate retribution. God waits. Why does God wait? Solomon says, don't fall into that trap. Just because retribution isn't immediate, in no way waters down the certainty of retribution. It will come. There will be a judgment. And all the time in the world in between isn't going to change the reality of that. Death will be the great equalizer. You've all heard that said. Solomon says, I've got one better than that. Judgment will be the final and perfect writer of wrongs. And judgment is a certainty. Even though it's delayed, it is a certainty. Remember the time you were riding along in the car with your parents or maybe you were in the store and you were a youngster at that time and you were misbehaving and one of your parents said, boy, are you going to get it when you get home? If you were like me, it was like, ah, oh, but I've got two hours. And then at one minute and 59 one hour and 59 minutes, you were saying, one hour and 59 minutes. One hour and 58 minutes. One hour and 57 minutes. Sheer agony for two hours. It would have been far better if our parents would have disciplined us right then and there. But you know what? The waiting was part of the lesson. I don't know if you realize that. Your parents were really pretty smart. They, they knew that the waiting for that discipline when you got home and when you, you got in a private place, perhaps, was far better than disciplining you right there. God says, learn from the lesson of life. We should learn the same lesson as we wait for our judgment, as we wait for our account, our rendering. It says, recognize this in absolute certainty. You ever noticed as people get older, they tend to, now I don't want to make any generalizations here that can't be proven, but they tend to sin a little bit less. 
They don't seem as wild. They seem a little more settled. And as they get older and older, this, this becomes more so. Until finally, at the end of their lives, you see relatively quiet, relatively obedient people, not always challenging authority. I know there are exceptions here. But as a rule, you see people who are trying to do it right. Whether they're Christians or not, that's the interesting thing. They tend to be better behaved. We tend to be better behaved as we get older. Question. Why? Isn't it because they know that soon they face their own death? And after death, like the biblical writer says, comes the judgment. I believe that's exactly the reason. Even unsaved people are trying to clean it up and prepare for what they know is coming at some level of their experience. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Here is the judge that we face. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe He is the judge in all the judgments of Scripture. All the judgments are based on works, at least in some way. Sometimes that needs a little bit of a qualifier. And Jesus Himself will render all the judgments. Well, here's what the judge is like. Here's the judge that we will face. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the, from the stem of Jesse, excuse me, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see. That's too deceiving. You look at people, they kind of look okay. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. Rats. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That's not good news. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. What is this righteousness and faithfulness? Well, usually when Christians read these words, they say, that's wonderful, that's moral purity, that's good news. No, it's not. Righteousness, it means his standards will be exact. He is not going to budge an inch when he renders judgment upon us and upon those around us. So that's not necessarily good news. You know, we rejoice on one side of it because we always rejoice where we find truth. But on the other side... That's the righteousness we're going to face individually. What about faithfulness? Well, it's not so good news either. It means there's no possible way of escaping. It means absolute certainty. The fact that God is faithful in rendering judgment means He will render judgment on all of us. I don't know about you, but this helps me. This doesn't hurt me. This doesn't wound me. But this helps me to know how to live here and now. It gives me a good, clear reason to put in my daytimer. One day, Dave Duell is going to face the Lord who will judge in this way. That's a good reality to know about. Well, Solomon says there's more. Chapter 11 and verse 9 of Ecclesiastes. Again, we're skipping over a lot of the teaching that Solomon makes on judgment. Chapter 11 and verse 9. Solomon says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. 
And follow the impulses of your heart. He's drawing us in here, so be careful. And the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Third point. Solomon says, control the root of your disobedience that lies deep within you. Solomon says, don't, don't take stabs at your behavior. That's just the symptom. That's not the reality. The reality is deep within every one of us. He talks about the impulses of our hearts. He talks about the desires of our eyes. What are those things? The impulses of our heart, very literally. He says, walk in the ways of your heart. But he's saying very straightforward. Let's talk about the ways of the heart. What are they? Well, the ways are the, the impulses, the word that your Bible uses. They're the natural inclinations. They're the ways that you would respond immediately without thinking too much about it. It's not the kind of thing you, you struggle with. You just sort of do it, knee-jerk reaction type stuff. Your heart well, I have a friend who says the heart in the Bible is the mission control center. Some of you have heard this before. The mission control center, remember, is that little booth on the ground that controls the big rocket that goes up in the air. Without the mission control center, the rocket's going nowhere. In fact, it's out of control from the get-go. Well, what is your mission control center like? It's your thinking, it's your feeling, and it's your willing component that's deep within you. It's really not that blood-pumping organ so much as it is that which drives you. It's that which gives direction, really, to everything that you do. You know, your life is like that control booth and that rocket. And your mission control center is that which is controlling your rocket, more or less, if we can say it that way. Solomon says, don't let it get out of control. You've got to start with the issues back in the control booth. Don't wait for the rocket to go off. Start at the very beginning. Nip it in the bud. Know what your heart is like. Solomon says you've got to get it under control because left to your own, your own givens, you won't do the right thing. Your own habits, your own knee-jerk reactions need to be caught and need to be captured and kept under control. Then Solomon says watch out for the desires of your eyes. And of course, he's not talking about those those two organs deep within our skulls, he's talking about what they're attached to. The things that cause the desires that sort of feed in through the eyes are fed, if we can say it that way. Solomon says, watch out. The desires of the eyes, that goes back to Genesis 3. Remember, that's the, the terminology that's used there. For the way that they viewed that fruit, it was desirable to the eyes. Solomon says, you've got to figure out a way to hit the switch when that happens. You've got to cut it off. You've got to look the other way. Don't look at it. If that's what looking is going to do, look the other way. Have a predisposition to respond immediately when you sense that you're being tempted. Solomon says, watch out for the impulses of your heart. Watch out for the desires of your eyes. You know, Solomon, of all people, wrote the book on this one. Remember, that's what happened to Solomon. He went after everything he wanted. And at the end of his life, he begs you to learn from his mistakes. He says, young person, don't make these same errors. Don't make these same sins that I did. Learn 
for my tragedy. And it is a tragedy. Well, Solomon says, uh, you need a reason to get life under control? Look at the end of verse 10, chapter 11. He says, so remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. Pain is the outcome, by the way. It's not the immediate thing that you get from the desire. It's the outcome of giving into the desire. Because childhood and the prime of life are vapors. Forget the word fleeting. That's the, the metaphor behind fleeting. It's, it's a vapor. It's like James is saying. It dissipates into the air. Solomon is saying, you know what? Before long, you're going to find yourself in this fleeting life of yours in the middle of your life. And you're going to say, you know what? That was a vapor, those young years. But look at the tragedy I created in my life. Look at the ways that I gave in when I could have been strong, but I wasn't cutting off those urges and those desires where I should have. Solomon says, know that it's going to go real fast. It's going to go so quick. It's going to be over before you know it. Get it under control now. Finally, Solomon says, at the end of it all, this is the fourth point, embrace the bottom line of life. Now, I was born a Presbyterian. And I was baptized as an infant and rebaptized later on. And I learned the catechism. And I learned that very cherished, almost poetic, very noble statement, the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's absolutely true. But you know what? Not written in that statement is chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. That's another side of that statement. There's more than one bottom line, if we can say it that way. Let's read the bottom line. Solomon says, hey, look, the conclusion, the final statement when it's all said and done is this. When all has been heard, fear God. That's faith. And keep His commandments. Why? Because this applies to every person. Because God will bring every, every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden. Rats. I thought I got away with all that stuff, but God saw it. Even the things that I thought and I didn't do that were sin in the thinking, God knows about it. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Fear God, that's faith. Keep His commandments. Those are the works that come out of our faith. If we just kept the commandments alone, we'd be short-circuiting the process. We've got to have the faith behind it. Fear God, keep His commandments. Every act will be judged one day. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever you and whatever your hands find to do in life, do it with zeal. Don't waste life. I mean, if you're going to be a, an unregenerate type of a sinner, just go do it. Flat out, 100%. But if you're going to be a believer, if you're going to say that you are committed to Jesus Christ, flat out, 100%. Give it your all. Give it your every wakeful moment from the time when you get up in the morning till the time that you go to bed at night because every act will be judged. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach in a small church, a group of people that were very intimately acquainted with one another, and there's a lot of 
of, of, of sharing of life's experience that went on in that church. And I was told that I was to preach a sermon to the young, a message, to the young people getting ready to go off to college for the first time. They were nervous about going off to college like all of us were, about the unknowns. They were afraid of what could happen, probably the worst thing that could happen, which would never happen, but they wanted me to challenge the young people in a way that would help them in their experience. So I preached in the life of Solomon, 1 Kings 2 through 11. Title, Make Good Decisions. Solomon made two bad decisions in that narrative, and in the end, his life and the life of the whole kingdom suffered for it. But something interesting happened. At the end of the message, I was walking down, going to sit with my wife, and uh, things were kind of over, and, and people were starting to get up and move around. This man came up to me and slipped me a piece of paper. And he said, you know, in this, this little memo that he gave me, he said, you know, you stop short of the total message. You left out the forgiveness of God in your message. You didn't say enough. You only told about the judgment. You only told about Solomon's warning. And at first, I, I felt a little tinge of guilt. I thought, wow, you know, he's, he's right in it. You know, if I had to preach that message again, I would preach it exactly the same way. Because that is Solomon's message. Solomon knew God's forgiveness in the end, I believe. But his message is, I want to prevent the young people of the kingdom from messing up their lives now. I want to know that one day they can stand before the Lord and say, I did my best. Or I did as well as I could. Or something like that and not have to say, like Solomon said, I trashed it. I messed it all up from beginning almost to end. That's why he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. He's saying, don't wait to the end of your life to get it right. Solomon says there is a kind side to judgment. And the kind side to judgment is this you are warned now that it's coming. Do something about it. Let's pray.